With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. I fly into Baghdad. The guy who handles all the logistics goes, oh, okay, yeah, we're going to send you up north. Just so you know, four guys got killed yesterday and you're going to be a replacement. One day we had a run to parliament. And so we're watching where the explosives are going off. And then we're trying to pinpoint what road they're, they're blowing up at. All of a sudden, we see explosions go off on the route that we're supposed to go to take home. We round a corner, and we're all just kind of sitting there waiting for traffic to clear. And all of a sudden, there's this huge explosion. And all I see is this, like, wall of concrete smoke just bellow and roll across the cars and dead silence on the radio. This is Finding Founders. I'm Samuel Donner, and that was Jason Stapleton as a Blackwater mercenary in Iraq. And this experience embodies a certain magnitude of intensity that he's taken with him throughout all his endeavors. He's been a sniper in the Marines, a broke truck washer, a trader, and a wealth coach. Nowadays, he sits safely behind a microphone, hosting his libertarian podcast, Wealth, Power, and Influence. We are living in the greatest period in human history, a period of massive technological and economic advancement. My name's Jason Stapleton. Welcome to Wealth, Power, and Influence. Although we don't necessarily agree with all of Jason's political views, his story is incredibly interesting and his business acumen is undeniable. The through line of his life and his business ventures is built on the core foundation of pursuing liberty and achieving authentic freedom. Growing up, though, he was anything but free. He was stuck in a crummy little town in the middle of nowhere. The town of Sublet, I got to tell you, I was, my grandparents were farmers, and my father left the farm when he went to college and decided he wanted to go to law school. And despite you know, his attempts to be successful at that. He he never really was very successful at it. We ended up moving back to Southwest Kansas to my father's hometown when I was, I don't know, maybe in the third grade. One of the things I remember about it is just, I felt very detached from anything else. We lived on in a little double wide trailer out about six miles south of town. And every morning I'd get up at six o'clock in the morning and we'd get on the school bus and we'd drive into town. And then it'd take an hour to get home when we got out of school at three. So I wouldn't get home to around 4.30. And so I can just remember feeling very separated from everybody else. And uh, I, I don't know that I was very well liked in school. Actually, I don't, I don't know if I was very well liked ever. I spent a lot of time alone with me and my brother, who was about three years younger than me. 
We did all kinds of like weird, like weird stuff. I can remember at 10 years old, I was allowed to go and grab a giant ammo can full of ammunition and a 22 rifle and just go out and shoot it. There's nobody for like miles in any direction. And so you just kind of go out there and we'd set up 10 cans and we'd shoot the 10 cans. And it was just the thing you did at the time. Uh, we built forts. I remember one time I went into my grandfather's shed because he had a big shed on the property where we lived. And, uh, and I found a piece of metal. And I ground down this piece of metal into a samurai sword. And I came back in and I showed it to my old man. And I said, Dad, look, I, I made a samurai sword. And he's like, that's not how you do it, son. So we went back out, got the grinder out. And he actually made me this really sharp blade. And he wrapped it up and put a little, like, uh, like a little handle on it so that I wouldn't cut my hand off. And then he made one for my brother who had to be like six at the time. And so here we are with these like metal samurai swords that would literally chop your hands off. It didn't seem weird at the time, but now I'm like, dude, I I can't believe I still have all my fingers and toes. But that was, you had to kind of get creative with how you spent your time. At 12, Jason was already a little warrior. Forged by pure childhood fantasy, he produced a warrior's most vital companion, a weapon. Namely, a samurai's sword. He saw a piece of metal in its most crude form and felt compelled to infuse the object with purpose. That purpose was to enhance the fantastical musings of a kid whose world is a tiny town in the middle of the country. It's the stuff of boyhood daydreams. But Jason integrated that distant, almost magical object into his provincial town in the middle of nowhere. Like a samurai, Jason followed a mentor, his father, But he didn't always see his dad as a role model. In some ways, Jason's dad was a cautionary tale. I view kind of my father in two different respects. When I was growing up, um, I I don't know if I could have asked for a better dad. I mean, he he did dad stuff with us, right? He came home. He wasn't overly concerned about work. He put his time in. He wasn't, if I'm being honest, my, my father, I don't know if he was ever a very hard worker. I, I know that he never made any money and, and uh, I, don't, I don't know how much he really cared about his profession. But that was good for me as a kid because he came home and he liked spending time with us. He liked wrestling on the floor and taking us camping and all the stuff that you really want to do with your dad. And then I have my father, at, and when I was 16, my parents got divorced, and um, I saw a very different side of my dad. I kind of view them as almost two different people now as I, as I compartmentalize it in my brain. But back then, I just thought of it as, you know, we lived on a farm and, and we didn't have much money. And, but I remember one time in particular... And I woke up and I walked out and I remember seeing my dad sitting on the edge of his bed facing away from me with his shoulders slumped over. And he looked so dejected and depressed about having to get up and go to work that day. I I felt bad. You know, you don't want to look at your parents that way. You want to be inspired by your folks and you, you want to really you want to look up to them. And in many ways, I did look up to my father and still do. Um, but in that one instance, it stuck with me. And I just remember thinking, dude, I, I don't want that to be me. I don't want my, I don't want to hate my life. I don't want to hate my work. And I remember having that exact emotional feeling and the complexity of that emotion at 10 or 11 years old. And it stuck with me until today. I can still, I can still see it as clearly as the first time that, that when it happened. 
Jason's perception of his father was complex. His dad was a success as a dad. If you measure success by time spent playing catch with your son and other typical dad activities. But he was a failure at work. A father is not there just to endorse whimsical samurai sword crafting projects. A father can serve as a role model, a blueprint to envision your future self. His dad's professional failures muddied the adoration Jason felt for his father. In a warped way, Jason saw his dad as a role model precisely because of his failures. I cannot be my dad, he thought. It's pretty sad. Jason loves his dad, but that feeling of love is almost inseparable from a feeling of pity. However, his family was not completely absent of professional success. He saw industriousness in his grandparents. I was very lucky as a kid because while we did not have any money, I, I, my dad never made more than $30,000 in a given year, but my grandparents who lived next door to me were very wealthy. And I really got to see two sides of a life and how closely those lives intersect. Well, my grandmother in the summer twice a week would drive us from the little town in Sublet, six miles south of town, all the way north to the country club in Garden City, the South Winds Country Club. And she would take us to play junior golf, me, my brother, and all of my cousins. And I would go out and I would get to spend a few hours twice a week playing golf with some of the richest kids in that area. And I got to see what it was like to live on the other side. So you saw wealth, but couldn't grasp it. But see, here's the thing, is that it was that close, right? It wasn't something that was far away. And I can remember driving through those streets when I was a kid and looking at this, these ginormous houses and thinking to myself, man, what would it be like to live in one of those houses? That was maybe the greatest gift that my grandmother could have given me was that showing me that, that side of life, that, that wealth and that prosperity really isn't that far away. It, it's within reach and I got to see it and be part of it. And that, I think, really helped me visualize what I could have for my own life. It seems like it developed somewhat of like a, a determination to have that life. If anything, it reinforced that it could happen. There was yeah. never this thing of, oh, that's never gonna happen for you. It's like, no, it might happen. These knuckleheads I was playing golf <laughs> with sure weren't any smarter than me. It opened my mind up to the possibility. While he cruised around 18 holes in a golf cart, watching with envy the polo shirt-clad kids from the brighter side of the tracks, Jason was confronted by his tiny family home and his dad's meager 30K a year salary. This internal cacophony produced one thought. This cannot, will not be my life. When his life was held up in stark relief to the world of his grandparents, he realized a better life existed. And thus, that life was possible. By living the life of luxury, if only temporarily, he was convinced he could attain that life permanently. Jason would take an unconventional path towards that life. For whatever reason, I've always been a contrarian thinker. But as I got to the end of high school, I looked around and I said, well, I don't know what I want to do. 
And I go, well, I'm not going to borrow all this money and go to college just because that's what everybody says I'm supposed to do. I don't want to invest that kind of money until I know what I want to do. And the only thing I knew I wanted as graduation was coming around was I knew I wanted to get out of town. I did not want to spend another day in Kansas. There is an entire world out there, and I realized I could live anywhere I wanted to, and the last place I wanted to be in was Kansas. Now, I didn't know where I wanted to go, but I knew that if I joined the Marines, that they would let me go places, that they would send me places. I had a desire to to be of service. And I really believed that people who joined the military were putting themselves in a position where if they were needed to protect life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness, that we're raising our hands and saying, um, I'm willing to do that. When you enlist in the military, I, a lot of people don't understand this, but you are signing your life away. You are essentially saying, I'm selling myself to you. My body, my life now belongs to state, and you can do with it whatever you want. Uh, and I'm doing that because I want to serve. I think that that is a noble and, and a righteous cause to be in. That was why I joined. And secondly, as I knew that I would be wherever history was happening. I had grandiose visions of an epic life when I was younger. My expectations of what the Marines was going to be like was exactly what it was. But after about six months in the infantry, I realized I had learned pretty much everything there was to learn there, and I wanted another challenge. And so I ended up trying out for a sniper team, and I ended up being accepted. And then we went overseas to Okinawa for about a year. Jason had a singular goal. Get the hell out of this town. And he didn't just get out of his town, he took it a step further by traveling all the way to Japan. Jason, we're, we're not in Kansas, Kansas anymore. anymore. Unlike his isolated youth, Jason joined a fraternity of elite soldiers that lived in close quarters and trained to have one another's back in life and death situations. It was true camaraderie. Semper Fi, we're always loyal as the Marines say. You can hear that commitment to the Marine's creed when he describes enlisting. It's selling yourself to the state. His entire being belonged to a higher purpose in the military hierarchy. And he knew where he stood within that hierarchy. So in the Marine Corps, you have two different kinds of people. You have people who fight in wars and you have people who support people who fight in wars. No matter what your job is, you're divided into one or the other. So the yeah. war fighters in the Marine Corps all take precedent. The lowest level of those warfighters being your everyday infantrymen. Well, at the very top of that warfighter kind of hierarchy is Marine Force Reconnaissance. And once you get to that level, pretty much nobody can touch you. I remember one time we had gone to watch a movie and we had snuck a bunch of beer in. We weren't supposed to do that. And so we got out of the movie and we were walking across the base back to our barracks, just absolutely housed. And I just decided that I needed to relieve myself. And so in the middle of the street, I just went. And of course, as a, you know, as a major or somebody, I can't remember who it was, came over. He outranked me by a significant amount. And he said, give me your ID cards. Who are you guys with? 
And uh, I said, uh, you know, I'm still with Recon Battalion over here. And, and uh, I said, my name's Sergeant Stapleton. And, you know, I showed him my ID card, but I refused to give it to him. I'm like, you're not taking it. We'll fight right now. And he said, he said, all right, I'm going to, I'll talk to your battalion commander tomorrow. Now in any other unit, I'd have been busted down. I'd have been raked through the coals. I would have been in hot water for that. The next morning I get a call and it's my captain just cursing me up and down. He goes, Stablet, did you get caught pissing in the middle of the street last night? And I said, uh, yeah, Captain, I did. Sorry about that. He goes, do you know how much shit I had to put up with this morning listening to this guy? I said, yeah, I'm really sorry, Captain. I won't do that again. He goes, good, stop pissing in the street. And hung up the phone and that was it. So it's like we kind of got to walk around and we're cowboys. Though we were a wild group of young guys, we were very disciplined at what we did. We yeah. took our job really seriously. Um, every day, all day, what we did was train how to kill people and how to survive. There seems to exist this paradox between the seriousness with which Jason viewed the job and the seemingly disrespectful urination incident. But maybe these actions were the mental releases needed to maintain sanity within this high-risk, high-stress world. I think this incident also weirdly reveals a milestone for Jason. Jason got a piss pass. In other words, he got away with something because of his high ranking. He had never had that before. People in his grandparents' world had the pass, so he knew what it was like. But remember, he was just a visitor to those ritzy golf clubs. Marine Force Recon was the swanky golf club of the military world. Jason had surpassed the world of his father, which he had vowed to leave who is now a cowboy walking around the base like he owned the place. It's a far cry from his father, slouched, and unable to pay for a family vacation. Suddenly, something would disrupt his cowboy lifestyle on the island. Something big. It's 8.52 here in New York. I'm Brian Gumbel. We understand that there has been a plane crash on the uh, southern tip of Manhattan. You're looking at the uh, World Trade Center. We understand that a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center. We don't know anything more than that. When September 11th happened, I was living in Okinawa, and it happened in the middle of the night. So I got out of bed, and I turned the TV on, and sure enough, I'm watching the towers in flames. Uh, major flames are coming out of the... Let's see, the north side. And, and also, they start talking about it potentially being a terrorist attack. Oh, my God. Another plane has just hit, it hit another building. Flew right into the middle of it. Explosion. That, yes, that was definitely looked like it was on purpose. You saw. And then as the sun is coming up, I get a phone call that says, be down at the ISO Hoochin at 11 o'clock. And that's where we all meet. I immediately knew what was going to happen next was I was going to get an OPSEC brief, an operational security brief. And after that OPSEC brief, I would not be able to talk to anybody about anything because those OPSEC briefs go something like this. You show up and they say, okay, this is your OPSEC brief. Everything you hear after this is classified and you are not allowed to call home. You are not allowed to talk to anybody. You are a ghost, essentially. I'm trying to remember in the moment the way I felt. I think there was more of an anticipation than anything else. Imagine being on a football team and every day you wake up and they pay you to go and practice, but you never actually play a game. And so you've spent years just practicing playing football. And now all of a sudden the phone rings and it's like, hey, we're actually going to play a game. 
only you could die. There's this hint of like, yes, finally, we get to go and play. At the same time, the full weight of what war is starts to come down on you. And the crazy thing is like, you really don't know. Like nobody really knows. You, you, a lot of guys you think will be really good when bullets start flying are not. And other guys that you worried about become like true heroes. You can't truly know which way you're going to go until it happens to you. But you do understand the gravity of the situation and that in a war, a lot of people don't come home. In this moment, Jason felt the full weight of war. That weight gave way to second thoughts. Yes, he was excelling in his field, but did he want to make this a career? Did he see a future? Why did you feel the need to switch directions? There were only a couple of other things I could have done in the military that I wasn't doing already. Marine Force Reconnaissance is kind of at the top tier in the Marines. For me to continue to ascend, I would have had to do what's called a lat move, which is to move out of the Marines and either into the Navy or the Army. And if I can't go and use the training that I've been taught and the only way to continue to hit that next level is to move to another branch of service, I just said, you know what, I'm going to go try something new. As I said, I grew up on a farm. I didn't have a lot of friends. I didn't really even have a lot of really good friends. I just had a handful until I went into the Marines. And now, all day, every day, you're surrounded by people who are all ride-or-die people for you. And then you go home, and you got nothing. Because for the last four years, eight years, however long you've been gone, they've moved on. Everybody else is living different lives, and now you're completely alone. That was the hardest thing is not having that sort of camaraderie. And, and a lot of military guys feel that way. And the other thing was in the Marines, especially they work really hard to break down and to beat out of you. Literally in some cases, the individualism that you have. Um, the idea is you are not an individual. You are part of a team. You are one of many. And the idea that you would put yourself ahead or talk yourself up or anything like that is really kind of looked down upon. And showboating and stuff like that is kind of socially frowned upon. Well, when you get out of the military, you have to promote yourself. You have to show people how good you are so that you can get hired and get the job and all that. And that was another thing that I, I really struggled with in the beginning. I was unemployed, didn't have any money, and I met a guy who was trying to become a sheriff's deputy. And he said, well, if you're looking for a job, you can come scrub trailers at Trans Am Trucking with me. And for any of the listeners who don't know, Trans Am is a Midwestern 18-wheeler like trucking company. And they had these beautiful white trailers with TA, Trans Am, written in red on the side of them. And what we would do every day was take these long brushes and we would drive around the lot at Trans Am and every truck that was dirty, we would end up spraying this extremely corrosive like soap on there and then scrubbing all the gunk off the side of these trailers. And I was out there one day scrubbing the trailers and guys said to me, hey, Jason, how much, uh, how much money do you think they spent on you in the Marine Corps? And I started tallying it up, you know, food and lodging and, you know, pay and all the courses and training I went through. And I said, dude, it's got to be millions of dollars. 
And he goes, uh-huh. And now you're scrubbing trailers. That really, like, that stung a little bit. And I knew I wasn't going to stay there, but it didn't help the fact that it felt like I had gone way backwards in order to get out and, and kind of pursue other interests. And I think that if there's a lesson in there that I try and teach people, it's like, look, it's like sometimes you got to take a step back. To switch directions, you're going to have to take a step backwards. It was a huge step back. In the Marines, Jason had been coasting. He was an autopilot. His friends provided with his detail. Food served at the mess hall. His sense of identity, the Marine Corps even did that for him. They told him how to dress, think, act, and be. After leaving the Corps, he lost his built-in life planner and regained autonomy. But he didn't know what to do with that autonomy. Ironically, he had even less control of his life as a civilian. He was unemployed and broke. And when he did find a job, he was an automaton, completing the rote task of scrubbing trailers. Up, down, up, down, up, down, and repeat. At least with the cores, he was a high-functioning automaton, an elite killing machine. Scrubbing trailers, that was a big downgrade. I got out of the Marines. I have no skills that are marketable in the real world. And I was not finding any traction. I was living in this little one-room basement apartment underneath somebody's garage. I was so depressed. I'd been unemployed. I had a $40 credit card bill that I couldn't make the minimum payment on. The minimum payment was $10. And I couldn't pay the $10 because I needed that $10 to buy two Little Caesars pizzas. Because it was four days until I had another like part-time gig and I needed those two pizzas so that I could eat. And so I'm driving around and it's late at night, maybe one o'clock in the morning and I pull into the Lowe's parking lot and I just remember just sobbing, just like, uh, just sobbing. I mean, I felt like a complete failure and I said, I don't know what I'm going to do. And my buddy hired me to come over and remove all of his wood floors in his kitchen. And while we were there, he asked me what was going on. I said, I'm really depressed. I don't know what to do. I said, I've had this opportunity to go and work at the police department, but I don't know if that's what I want to do because I know I don't want to do that. But it might give me a stepping stone to something else. And he said, you know what, I think it would be good for you to go and do that and have some of that camaraderie again and get back on your feet, get a little confidence, and then you can bounce from there. And so I took his advice and I always saw it as a staging point, a way for me to kind of regroup, get some money in my pocket, get some stability, and then uh, jump from there. The police force was a welcome respite from regular civilian life, a life that he couldn't handle. Civilian life meant rationing Little Caesar's pizza. Civilian life meant living in a stoveless one-room apartment and breaking down crying. Civilian life meant being slumped over, feeling like a failure, like his dad. Gone were the days of walking around Okinawa with the piss pass. 
The police force offered a return to this highly structured, hierarchical, and authority-driven life he had with the Marines, and he felt safe there. He wanted to live in that thin blue line. He couldn't bear being on either side of it. His life was beginning to look cyclical, from civilian to Marines, to back to civilian, to domestic police, to back overseas with Blackwater. Uh, I got a call about two years later from a friend of mine who was working as a mercenary in Iraq, and he asked me if I wanted to come and work with him. And as soon as he said that, I said yes. Most of the guys that I joined with were all former special operations guys. And it's run by a guy named Eric Prince, and he built over the course of several years a private army. He ended up having his own jets, his own helicopters, like literally everything you could need to wage war. He created it and built it. And Blackwater has a very bad reputation. The biggest problem with all of the security companies that were operating over there is that all of them wanted former special operations guys, but the demand for people was so great that there was no way that they could fill the number of people with just really high-speed, low-drag guys. And so the standard kept being lower and lower and lower until pretty soon, who knows who you're working with. Jason was once again suited up and entering the game. His training would be put into practice. No more waiting around a military base waiting to get deployed. No more wasting his elite skills to scrub trailers. No more nibbling on Little Caesars in his one-room apartment. With Blackwater, his need to escape Kansas once again came to fruition. And Blackwater embodied the free market spirit and a capitalist ideology, and Jason gravitated towards it. It was a private enterprise entering the military-industrial complex. But Blackwater also complicated his views of service in that pursuit of liberty he had felt so duty-bound to. On the global stage, Blackwater had a less-than-sterling reputation. It was under intense scrutiny in 2007 when Blackwater mercenaries were involved in the deaths of over a dozen Iraqi civilians in Nusar Square, which resulted in the conviction of four Blackwater employees. A barrage of bullets sprayed Nasur Square, killing 17 Iraqis. All of the witnesses interviewed say the bullets were fired by guards working for Blackwater USA. They say also that the guards fired without provocation and that the shooting continued even as the victims fled for their lives. The Iraqi government supports their claims. Jason was thrown into this uncertain environment and would experience the violence of the Iraq war, encountering his own brush with death. I fly into Baghdad. The guy who handles all the logistics goes, oh, okay, yeah, we're going to send you up north. Just so you know, four guys got killed yesterday, and you're going to be a replacement. One day, we had a run to Parliament, and so we're watching where the explosives are going off, and then we're trying to pinpoint what road they're, they're blowing up at. All of a sudden, we see explosions go off on the route that we're supposed to go to take home. We round a corner... And we're all just kind of sitting there waiting for traffic to clear. And all of a sudden, there's this huge explosion. And all I see is this, like, wall of concrete smoke just bellow and roll across the cars. And dead silence on the radio. 
And so I'm sitting there for what feels like five minutes waiting for, it's probably like 10 seconds, but it felt like an eternity. And I ended up shifting my vehicle into neutral. And all of a sudden I just hear push through, push through, push through. So I throw it into drive and I slam on the gas and we blast through this cloud of smoke. And I look in the lead vehicle and the turret gunner, uh, my friend Hollywood, isn't there. And so the explosion happens and it kind of rocks him sideways. And all of a sudden he looks down and he's just bleeding profusely. And he's leaning down into the turret going, did they get me in the jugular? And he's just freaking out. For years later, still when I see him, I'm like, did they get you in the jugular? But <laughs> it's like... But um, you got to learn how to deal with a lot of really uncomfortable things. And some people deal with it really well. I've, I was very, very lucky. I didn't have any real PTSD. I didn't suffer from a lot of the really bad stuff that a lot of guys came back with. And I have no idea why that is. I don't know what, why I didn't and other people did. We'll be right back after this break. We've recently been getting some more listeners, but for some reason, we haven't seen much of an increase in our podcast ratings. So to understand a little more, I called Best Buy and tried to figure out what's going on with the ratings. Thanks for calling Geek Squad and Cotton, and this is Agent Lewis. I'm going to help you. I was looking at a Yeti blue condenser microphone with a 4.9 star rating. But a Best Buy customer who goes by the name of Sunnyboy682 rated the mic one star. I just wish there was like a way that I could be certain of what I was getting. Like, you know, when I listen to my favorite podcast, Finding Founders, it only has five star reviews. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so it's whenever it's one of those things that someone could easily just do like a one star or they could do a five star if they wanted to just because they like the name of it. When you say um, like the name of it, do you like the name of that podcast, like Finding Founders? What is it? Finding Founders. Do you like that name? Like, would you give that five stars? I mean, I do like the name. It's catchy. Yeah. Um, kind of so has too. a rhythm to it, I guess. Yeah. I like the name Finding Founders, too. And guess what? It's super easy to leave a review. It takes less than 30 seconds. So if you're listening right now and you haven't given Finding Founders a five-star review, I'd be eternally grateful if you took a few seconds and wrote us a review. It really helps and allows us to get better guests. Don't forget to subscribe and share with a friend. Now, back to the podcast. There were countless moments where Jason's life hung precariously in the balance. One wrong move could rip his flesh from bone. Yet he seemed to make light of this situation. The only thing leaving his body was laughter. But thinking about it, how else do you manage the intense stress of war? The inside jokes he had with his squad acted as an anchor to his humanity, a shield against the trauma of war. The near-death situations he encountered was an important aspect of the job, but he was also learning and reading voraciously. His experience at Blackwater gave him an unusual insight into the inner workings of Middle Eastern finance. One of the things that I learned 
is that I got to see what really happened behind the scenes. And it really pulled all the bloom off the rose into why we were there and what we were doing. And I started to realize, dude, we're not, we're not here for freedom or liberty. Like this is just one big money suck and a bunch of people justifying their jobs. This isn't anything about what they said it was about. And I realized that everything that I had been told and I believed was true about what we were doing was, a, was really a lie. And I got very disenchanted with it. I decided I didn't want to stay in that business any longer than I had to. And so I started asking myself some questions, just like, dude, if you could do anything in the world that you wanted, but you had to do it every day for the rest of your life, what would you do? And the idea was, I got a lot of money. I can invest in stuff if I want to. And I decided that if I could do anything, I'd, I'd probably work in the financial industry. I literally would spend, oh, 10 to 12 hours a day in front of my computer. I started trading penny stocks and then futures and ended up, ended up trading currencies. And I got pretty good at it. I realized pretty quickly that when done correctly, trading is really boring. The professional has a very specific set of rules of when they will trade and when they won't. They've tested those rules and they found that historically they produced a profit. And so I figured out pretty early that I needed something that had very clear, non-subjective rules on when to get on and when to get out. Well, I ended up reading a book called Trade What You See. And in it, he talked about advanced pattern recognition. There are repeatable patterns that form in every market. And if you find them, you can predict with some degree of accuracy what the likelihood is that you can make money. So one of those patterns is a Gartley pattern. And I figured out that if I took profits at certain levels, that I could make a Gartley pattern roughly 70% accurate. And so my goal was just like every day, just trade the patterns, just rinse and repeat. And that's what I did every day. Get a system, load, aim, fire, and repeat. Each move was deliberate calculated to provide him the best results. In the field, there wasn't room for error. There wasn't room to hesitate. Each second was important to survival. The same went for trade. There could be no dwelling on your losses and wins. Trading was a game of discipline. You had to check your emotional baggage at the door. You had to be deliberate. Indecision had landed him in a minimum wage job that could barely put two pizzas on the table. And he knew he never wanted to live like that again. Jason wanted stability. He wanted to provide for himself. He didn't want the legacy of his father. He wanted people to see him as a source of legitimacy. So his next step was to legitimize his trading business. But he would run into more regulations than he bargained for. I actually wanted to start a hedge fund. A billion dollars is a big number to start with. Very few funds have that kind of uh, red carpet rolled out for them. Yep. So funds who are just starting, how do they do it today? And that's what every kind of trader aspires to is, oh, I want to have billions of dollars under management. I want to be, you know, flying in helicopters and I want to live that Wall Street life. For a hot minute, I kind of had that expectation in my head too. And I started doing some research on what it would take to start a hedge fund. There's a couple of problems with it. 
Number one is that it's heavily, heavily regulated. I believe that uh, the regulatory focus on hedge funds has been extremely Sweeping new regulations for financial markets and hedge funds at a summit Sunday in Berlin. The effort comes... So you have to have basically a lawyer on staff to handle all of the legal stuff that you've got to do. All your numbers, you got to have an accountant on staff too. So it's going to cost tens of thousands of dollars a year, if not hundreds of thousands, to keep lawyers on retainer, pay for accountants, and actually service a business. But I thought, you know what? If I can get this track record lined up, I can probably raise the money that I need. Because one of the things that fund managers are looking for and also big money investors are looking for is they don't want risk. They don't care about making a 15% return a year. What they want is to never lose money. And so they will gladly take an 8% return a year and you know a 5% return a year if the downside risk is near zero. And so I needed to work on my portfolio a little bit and just adjust the way I traded a little bit in order to make sure that I would be appealing to those types of investors. At the same time, I was shopping my track record around with a couple of funds of funds through some friends. I got some feedback from one of them and they said, hey man, it looks good. Uh, Here's the problem. We can't give you less than $5 million and we can't be more than 20% of your portfolio or something like that. It was something weird like that. So they're like, please come back to us when you have $30 million under management and we would love to talk to you about about giving some money to your fund. And I realized, oh, wow, like most of these big funds who you would go to for money have like minimum requirements. They're not just going to give you 300 grand. They're not going to be 100% of your fund because what if you blow up, right? They, They don't want that sort of risk. And so they put all these restrictions in and I realized really quickly that there was no way. And to, unless I could find one person to give me 30 million bucks, I was going to be in a pickle. The only other way to do it is to start with a $400,000 investment, because if you can have up to 13 investors or $400,000 and not have to go through any of the licensing and regulation, you can manage family money, essentially. And the only other way to do it was to go do that and then over the next several years, grow that portfolio into a big enough portfolio that you could go and get outside capital. Problem with that was I didn't have that much time. I didn't want to spend the next decade building that portfolio up. And so I beat my head against the wall for a little while. And then all of a sudden I realized, you know what? I'd taken half a dozen courses from people on how to trade over the last five years. I mean, what I'm doing is just as good as anything they're doing. And I think I could probably teach what I do better than they're teaching what they do. I wonder how much regulation is involved with starting an education company. It turns out like nothing. Like there's no regulation at all. The only person who really regulates you is the FCC, and their general guidelines are don't be deceptive or lie to people. As long as you're like running an honest business, you don't really have to worry much. And so I just started the education company. It was as simple as just starting the education company. There was little regulation and no intricate legal language to comb through. But it wasn't just the red tape that discouraged Jason from pursuing a hedge fund. It was his ambition. This might seem counterintuitive, so give me a moment to explain. Coming from a background where money is scarce, where his next meal was uncertain, there's this consistent thump, a beat in the back of his mind, a beat infused with a desire for financial stability. He said so himself. He wanted to live the Wall Street life. He went into finance with the intention of making money to address that uncertain thump in the back of his mind, and he was determined to do so quickly. 
Ambition discouraged him from creating a hedge fund because he didn't want to wait for his fortune. He wanted it now. So he got to work. How did that take off? Because uh, eventually you, you started working with Todd Brown, who gave you some uh, sage advice. So, so can you talk to me about how that relationship started? So I had taken a course from Todd. A lot of entrepreneurs, what they think of when we're talking about growing and scaling your business. And we'd stayed in touch. And, and I said, hey, I, I kind of think I want to get into the education business. What do you think I should do? And there's a lot of different ways to grow sales. A and lot he of- helped me initially kind of navigate how to build a site. And, you know, you got to create some videos for people to look at. So I, I spent hours and hours and hours building websites in Afghanistan to make this transition. I, I ended up putting some videos onto a chat forum and they asked me if I would produce a video every week to put out. And I said I would. And at the end of every video, I told them, guys, if you would rather I just email you this video, I will. Or you can come back here and watch it every week. But if you want me to email it to you, just give me your email address. And over the course of, I don't know, three months or four months, I ended up collecting like a hundred email addresses. I had taken a course um, by a guy named Ryan Dice, and he was teaching people how to make money online. The first question I have for you is, do you know what that is? Do you even know what your pot of gold is? It's a lot easier when you do. I ended up taking this course and I applied what he kind of taught me. And so I sent an email out to the hundred people that I had on my list. And I said, hey, you know what? I'm doing all this stuff. I said, if you want me to send you every trade that I take right after I take it, if you'll pay me 250 bucks, I'll do it for you. And instantly I had like a $30,000 a year business. And I was like, that was really easy. And I literally am not doing anything more than what I was doing before, except sending an email. Over the course of the next, I don't know, the next year or so, I continued to build that up and I caught the attention of a couple of guys who do affiliate marketing. So the first thing you want to understand about affiliate marketing is it's commission-based marketing. It's selling products on a commission-only basis online. And so they're guys who are in the education space and they have really big lists of people. They came to Todd and asked Todd, hey, do you think that you guys would want to do an, an, an FX campaign, a launch to sell a product? And he came to me and said, hey, do you want to sell a product? And I said, well, I don't have a product. He said, well, would you like create one? And I said, sure. I ended up doing a two-week live event and they ended up bringing in somewhere around, I think we had like 2,000 people register and around 600 people would show up every day and I would just trade and I would talk to them about trading and talk to them about trading psychology and I would show them the system that I was using. And then when we got done, I said, hey, if you want to spend the next three months working with me and you want my system and everything that goes with it, it's 2,000 bucks. I ended up making about $230,000 on that. Paid off the affiliates. I had like 60 grand left over. Dude, 60 grand for three months worth of work isn't too bad. And now I got a list of people that I can continue to market to. So I thought that was pretty good. There was just one problem. I didn't have a course. So I sold $250,000 worth of stuff that I didn't have. And so what I did was I gave myself some breathing room. I said, we're going to wait a week before we start the program so you can get ready. I told him, oh, you guys can get ready while, you know, while I handle the money and everything. And during that first week, I managed to get the first week of content done for the course. 
during week one, they would watch all of week one's content. And while they were watching that content, I would be creating week two content. And that's the way I created my first course. I actually sold it quarter million dollars of it before I had it. And uh, I don't know, sometimes you just got to jump. You can't wait for everything to be perfect. Did you feel yourself like returning to that state of mind, that high risk, high intensity? Oh, for sure. I operate so much better under pressure. The worst thing that can happen to me is to have too much money in the bank. I'm not saying I spend every penny I make. What I'm saying is like I do my level best to like stay broke. My version of broke is probably different than other people's version of broke. But what I'm saying is like I try and get my money working in other places rather than just sitting in the bank. I got half a million bucks just sitting around doing nothing. I am not incentivized to do anything. I find that most of the time I sell products before I've actually created them. I'm not going to rip anybody off. I actually have a program in mind. I may have re- actually written out the entire syllabus for it, but I won't rec- start recording until I brought some money in. And the nice thing about that is, is it incentivizes me now to go out and create the very best course I can. Not too long ago, Jason waited with empty pockets and hungry eyes as the seconds ticked by on a microwave pizza. He went from worrying about getting his next meal to worrying about having too many zeros in his bank account. It's safe to say Jason had done a 180 financially. Many people with middle to upper class upbringings often take money for granted. They splurge on clothing, food, and just things that aren't necessary. But Jason never grew up with that luxury. His father's dejected face and slumped shoulders still haunted him. So when he had any free time, he built websites, learned finance, and channeled his angst into a productive medium, education. But Jason still harbored insecurities. He was afraid his brush with success was a fluke. And he was on a mission to prove that he wasn't just another one-hit wonder. So in 2014, the business was doing well. I had a really strong brand in the trading space. So if you were a currency trader at that time, it would be really hard for you to not know who I was. I realized that if I ever wanted to sell my company, which is something that I envisioned doing later on, that I would, it couldn't just be me. Because if I was the brand of the company, no one would buy it from me. And so I started putting other people in place and having them take over really the day-to-day operations of the company. I decided I wanted to try something different. Part of it was me saying, I wonder if I'm a one-hit wonder. Like, I wonder if I could actually do this again. One of the things I'd always wanted to talk about was politics and economics. I had learned a lot over the last 10 years about central banking and about economic theory and finance. I wanted to talk about a lot of the things that I was learning about and believed, but some of them were very political and I worried. Look, I I had clients in 110 different countries. Some of them are very progressive. I didn't want to offend anybody. It was never my intention to offend anybody, but I knew once I started talking about this stuff, people were going to get offended and I didn't want the company to be damaged because of that. But at the same time, I wanted to do this. So I started a little podcast and I thought, you know what? I'm going to see if I can build a new brand in a completely different niche where nobody knows me and find out whether or not I really know how to brand or whether I'm just like a dude who got lucky once. I like really went all out. So when I decided I was going to do it, I said, I need to build a studio. And I I want it to be a video and an audio podcast. And I had dreams of being a nationally syndicated radio show host. And I was watching some other people who had been really successful at building brands in radio and then converting it to television. 
And one of the guys that had just kind of started his own thing was Glenn Beck. I was watching what he was doing from a business perspective and I loved it. So I had about 800 square feet in my in my office that I wasn't using for anything. And I just said, well, let's do it. So I dropped $120,000 to build a fully functioning broadcast studio, television studio out of that room. I had 200 listeners. Nobody was listening to my show. That show didn't really start to grow until middle of 2016. And I can remember Darren, one of the guys who worked for me, he also was the producer on the show when we first started. And I can remember talking to him and I said, dude, I don't know how much longer I can do this show with only 300 people listening. Every single day, I did the show five days a week, three hours a day of my life for 300 listeners. He encouraged me. He said, I know, man, but we keep going. I really feel like we got something here. We just got to kind of find our footing and our voice, and then the thing will kind of take off. Jason saw no traction. Maybe it was a fluke. He started second-guessing himself. But within his uncertainty was a thrill. Jason was fueled by the thrill of the unknown. He sought adrenaline and a version of the vitality he felt as bullets flew inches away from his face. When the stakes were at their highest, when he was put in these life or death situations, he was at his best. Psychologically, humans are hardwired to be risk adverse, but Jason's upbringing hardwired him to believe he had everything to prove and nothing to lose. If he died in the field, so be it. If he lost money on a trade, who cares? Jason already lived paycheck to paycheck. He had already been dragged through the muck And no risk was going to deter him from making his podcast a success. I was stubborn and I was arrogant. Those are not always good qualities, but sometimes that's what you need. The very difficult thing about running anything and finding success at anything is that there are no shortage of people who will tell you what you should be doing and what you're doing wrong. And you've really got to find a very delicate balance with listening to people and not being so shut off that you ignore really good advice, stuff that you should be thinking about. Um, But at the same time, you cannot listen to anybody who hasn't been where you want to go with very much enthusiasm. Part of me just felt like, dude, I think we can do this. And the numbers were just inching up every single month, you know, but it was nothing significant. And then I got this wild and crazy idea. My show was really based around libertarians and kind of this idea of don't hurt people and don't take their stuff. I'm, that's really my philosophy on life as well as politics. So I said, you know what? We've got all these le- tiny dinky shows in that all talk about politics. I'm going to go and take some money that I've got and I'm going to offer to buy advertising space on their shows. All they got to do is say, hey, if you like my show, you should go check out Jason's show too. And I started doing that, and all of a sudden, the numbers started to climb. And we went from 400 to 800 to 2,000 to 20,000 to like 35,000 listeners a day. But one of the other things I did that didn't generate me any listeners that I know of was I bought radio time on a pay-to-play radio station just outside of Los Angeles. And the reason I did it was so that I could say that I was on the radio in Los Angeles because I wanted the street cred. It just so happens that the guy who ran that radio station was a really nice guy and he kind of liked my show. He and I really enjoyed the conversation and talking and he's like, you know what? I actually am friends with these guys over here at this other radio station that's syndicated. I'm going to pitch your show to them. About a week or two later, I got a call from that syndicated radio station and they said, here's what we got. We've got a weekend spot for an hour. The worst time, like at three in the morning. 
And so we kind of reworked one of the episodes of our show every single week that would play on radio that would have the breaks in it where they could play commercials. And in 2017, I became a nationally syndicated radio show host. And if you think I didn't like promote the hell out of that, you're crazy. If you feel the same way, then get ready. My name's Jason Stapleton. Welcome to Wealth, Power, and Influence. So that was how I did it. So I actually did. I became a nationally syndicated radio show host. I became the largest libertarian podcast in the world with over 35,000 listeners an episode. Like I said, it took two years to even get the ball rolling on it. But once it started, it ballooned really quickly. There's a period of time where you're kind of figuring things out. And what I see a lot of podcasters do is that they just keep doing the same thing. And anybody who talks to them says, well, you just got to keep doing it. Just keep putting out great content. You know, eventually the numbers will come. I hated that advice. I think that's the stupidest piece of advice you can offer to anyone is just keep doing the same thing over and over again and expecting something to change, right? That's idiocy. That's madness by pure definition. What I tell people is, well, try something different. I could have just kept going. I had a great show. My numbers continued to climb, but nobody knew who I was. I had to try something different. I would measure when I bought ads on a podcast, I would measure the download numbers before and the download numbers after, and I would calculate how many listeners I acquired from them. If those numbers didn't hold, if they started to fall off and I would lose those listeners, well, I'm doing something wrong. I'm, something's not entertaining enough. I figured out that good content is subjective, but if you're entertaining, that's really the most important thing. It's got to be entertaining. Jason was a lot of things, but insane wasn't one of them. Yes, he admits that he is stubborn and arrogant, but those seemingly egotistical traits actually worked in his favor. His stubbornness and arrogance fed into his resilience, allowing him to make strides in his career. He wasn't just any radio host. He was a nationally syndicated radio host. It's clear that Jason has passion, but an equally compelling motivator was a need for distance. A need to distance himself from the poor rural life he lived in Kansas. The Marines, Blackwater, trade school were all markers, reminders of how far he had traveled to flee his impoverished roots. And Jason wasn't going to slow down. He was going to add another achievement to his list. Dude, I, I, I grew up poor. I went to the very highest top of the military. I got out, became a private military contractor in Iraq and Afghanistan, started a multi-million dollar trading education company, had a number one podcast, became a nationally syndicated radio show host. And then I get a phone call out of the blue from some dude who worked at Prometheus Media. And he said, hey, do you know anything about Nikola Tesla? And I knew nothing. Of course, I said I knew a lot. So he goes, do you know anything about Nikola Tesla? I'm like, yeah. And while I'm Googling Nikola Tesla. Famed and mysterious scientist, inventor and proponent of the AC current system, the Tesla coil, and some believe the inventor of the death ray and free electricity for all. And uh, he said, well, yeah, we were doing this show and we've already been approved for five episodes and History Channel wants to do it. And, and we just think you'd be great. And I go, oh, uh, okay. He said, uh, would you do an online interview? And I did that. And they said, we'd like to bring you out to California, to Los Angeles and, and talk with you in person. And so they did that. And I met the other guys who were going to be there. And they said, we want you to be an investigative journalist. And we're going to be on the hunt for the missing trunks of the Tesla files. And I was like, what's it pay? And it didn't pay much. It pays like 10000 an episode, which uh, is like... 
I lost money every day that we were on that show. Just, uh, just I was just ble- hemorrhaging money on that show. The nice thing is I did it because I knew, I didn't know where it would go. Like how many times does somebody call you up and be like, dude, do you want to do a national TV show for the History Channel? That doesn't happen every day. You don't say no to that. I don't know where the opportunity is going to come from, but you don't say no to it. So I said yes, ended up going to Serbia, all over the United States. I worked with this great guy, Travis Taylor, who's just a brilliant guy. They did five episodes. It actually performed really, really well if you looked at the ratings. Travis and Jason are investigating the mysterious disappearance of literally thousands of secret files that belong to scientific visionary Nikola Tesla. Uh, at the end of the day, the, the demographic was too old. Like it did, they wanted that like really young demographic and, uh, and we just, we couldn't perform. And so they decided not to do any more episodes. It's the thing, I was lucky enough to be in a financial position where I could do something for the joy of it and not have to worry about the money. And it was, to this day, one of the funnest experiences that I've ever been part of. If they called me to do another one, I would seriously consider it. How often do you focus on money? Do you see more of your time weighted towards just doing things for the love of doing them, loving that process? My only goal in life is to only do the things that I want to do. So I happen to believe that time is the most valuable asset that we have. And it is a non-renewable, non-replenishable resource. And people do not value it enough. There are too many people standing in line for, uh, for eight hours to get a new cell phone who have no respect for their time at all. I'm exactly the opposite. The very first thing that I do when I get a little bit ahead is I start buying time. I think at the end of the day, we are either net buyers of time or we're net sellers of time. And the bulk of mankind are net sellers. They trade away eight hours of their day for a specific amount of money. They all sell time for a living. And my goal is to be a net buyer of time and to buy away all the stuff that I don't want to do in my life. And so when I, when I choose a career path or when I choose a project to work on, a big part of it is, am I going to enjoy this? Because if I'm not going to enjoy it, I'm not going to apply any time to it. That's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a no-no. But the second question I ask is, okay, if I'm going to apply time to this, is it going to be financially profitable for me to do so? Is it going to add to my ability to buy time or is it going to detract from it? Time is finite. When Jason reached a certain level of financial success, there became an ideological clarity. Money no longer was the most valuable resource. It was time. With this extra time, his attention wandered to education. He had a desire to teach and positively impact people's lives. Where are you now and and what are you most excited for? It sounds so bad. My job now is to spread my philosophy on life and money around the world. No, it's, I really am. I'm just finishing up a book called Nomadic Wealth. Um, But I, what I do want to do is I want to teach people how I did what I did. And so Really what I've managed to do is I've managed to create income streams that are transferable. Meaning I live in Los Angeles right now. I live here because it's beneficial for me to be here, number one. Uh, But number two, I I love the weather and the water, right? But if I want to go to Italy tomorrow, I can literally move tomorrow. My business will not stop. It will continue to produce me revenue. I will not lose a beat. If the country goes to hell in a handbasket and I got to leave for other reasons, I'm gone. My business goes too. 
that continual cash flow in excess of what I need to provide for myself creates wealth that can then be applied to things that truly create passive income and true nomadic wealth. And so I'm writing this book that kind of talks about that. And then my biggest joy and passion right now comes from helping entrepreneurs who have really great ideas, bring those ideas to fruition. So how do I start my business? How do I grow my business? Guys who are doing well, but they want to do really well. And they're trying to figure out how to scale. And they don't understand the principles of marketing and advertising and branding and sales. I wake up every day and do stuff that I love doing. Unlike my father, who sitting on the end of the bed, dejected and demoralized that he's got to get up and go to work, you know, I wake up excited to walk across to my office and to sit down and to start working on the things that I've got. And I'm excited tomorrow that I, I'm going to have a meeting with all of my clients and, and do a bunch of Q&A and, and try and help them. My job is to help other people get what they want. That is an, an incredible gift to have, um, to be able to do. I've discovered that that's where really, at least right now, that's where my deepest passions lie. I'm going to ride that train until the wheels come off of it because it's just every day is, um, is, is an adventure and every day is exciting. I am very happy with where things are. I always say I'm, I'm always content but never satisfied, right? Like I think it's important that wherever you're at, there are so many people who think who are waiting to arrive somewhere. And the fact is that you're never going to get there. There's no happily ever after. There's no point where you like hit it and like everything's fine. There's going to be this constant drive and, and, and draw towards some sort of increase in your life. My only goal really in life is to test the, the limits of, of my own ambition. Like, and, and dude, it's just been great. It's been a wonderful first half of life. And uh, we'll see about the back half. Many people live for a happy ending. Our culture is steeped in happily ever afters and driving into the sunset and retiring on a beach. But an ending isn't in the cards for Jason. He believes in process over product. Or to indulge a cliche, it's about the journey, not the destination. Yes, Jason is achieving his goals, but he isn't necessarily goal-oriented. Achieving goals is just an indicator that his process is sound. But what he really strives for is waking up every day motivated, excited to take on challenges as they arise. I think for a lot of his life, Jason had been running, not towards the sunset, but away from the demons of his past. Accomplishments were just one step farther from his father's looming shadow, one step farther from a dismal future. There was a shift after Blackwater, though. He was still running, but he had a semblance of direction. He was following his passions and ambitions. Looking back to that, that kid in Sublet in Kansas, what advice would you give that person? Well, I'll tell you a story. I was, I was maybe 20, 26 years old, 27 years old, and I was visiting my grandfather. I told you he lives on a country club. And at, at the point in my life, I was, I was doing contracting work and I had some money, but I, I was feeling a little dejected in the sense that I felt like I should be further along. Like I should kind of know what I wanted to do. I should have a career by now. I felt like, dude, I'm, I'm wasting years that I could be being productive at something and I'm just kind of like spinning my wheels here. And I told him that. And he said, ah, oh, Jason, he's like, you're going to be fine. He said, I remember sitting down with my dad 
and telling him when I was about your age, you know, Dad, if I could just be as successful as you, I, I think I'd be pretty happy. And he told me, he said, you know, oh, son, you're going to be so much more successful than me. And he's like, you're, you're going to be, he said, you're going to be fine. And if I was going to talk to my younger self, one of the things that I would, I would, I would tell him, listen, slow, deliberate, steady action. And so for your listeners, anybody who's around there's like, man, I feel like I'm wasting my life away. I feel like if I'm talking to my younger self, I'm telling them just slow, deliberate, steady action. Move. Be active. If you don't know what you want to do, do lots of stuff. Try lots of things. Don't worry about your other friends already got a $100,000 job working at a cubicle at some, you know, douchey place downtown, right? That If that's not what you want, don't go after that. You know, don't set yourself up for a life that you think you're supposed to be living because that's what's been sold to you. Because that life for most people is going to lead to a lot of regret and a lot of frustration and people feeling trapped and miserable. And that doesn't have to be you. So stop reading off the prescription that people tell you you're supposed to be taking and run your own path. And the other thing I would tell them is, if you want to be successful at anything, one of the things you're going to have to learn how to do is to have a complete and utter lack of care for what anybody thinks of you. Because as you start to ascend... First thing, people are going to tell you that you're crazy. They're going to tell you you're stupid. My point is this, is that in the beginning, everyone will underestimate you. Everybody will tell you what isn't possible. Everyone will push you to a some level of mediocrity between total failure and your true potential. That's where they want you because that makes them comfortable for you to be at their level. And so in the beginning, you've got to ignore those people and what they tell you. If they are not where you want to be, you got to stop listening to them. And so you have to understand that as you go through this journey, you are going to be hated. You are going to be called names. You are going to be discounted. And you got to get comfortable with that. And the more comfortable you are, the more successful you're likely to be. There's this intensity to Jason that I noticed throughout our interview. And I think the conspicuousness of that intensity is magnified by his candor. He doesn't mince words. He doesn't try to blunt his edges. He just is. I think that is what allowed him to look at his father and see a cautionary tale where most might just see their dad. I think that's what allowed him to recognize that as a soldier at his base, he was being trained to be a killing machine. It wasn't just a symbol of liberty. I think that's what allowed him to garner significant and accelerated wealth. At times, Jason is dogmatic. He constructs binaries that allow him to navigate life efficiently and effectively. And that seems to be what has led to his success in trading, his success as an entertaining libertarian podcast host, and his accruement of this wealth. Although Jason may take these binaries further than most, I think he teaches an important lesson. We should look at our lives with objectivity and create rules based on what we see. And it can start small. It could be as simple as, I'm out of shape, I should run each morning to get into shape, 
If I miss two days in a row, that's what failure looks like. If I run every day, that's what success looks like. You've created a binary in an objective way to measure your success. And this can be extrapolated to almost all areas of your life. So maybe look at Jason and then look at yourself. Do you need some of his intensity? Be objective, be honest, and move forward. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Adrian Tapia leads the editing team with Matt Fernandez, Sophia Donner, and Dharma Shaw. Phoebe Sajor leads the design team with Annie Liu, James Barton, Charlotte Isidore, Rachel Dang, and Maddie Bozen. Sahej Sandhu leads the outreach team with Jessica Lin, Sasha Ivanova, and Roma Bedeker. Sophie Davies leads the writing team with Joyce Mock, Dan O'Nissen, and Elizabeth Bowen. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.